Alright, good afternoon guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Beauty and the Beast Physical Therapy and Strength Conditioning Podcast. Joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Ross Childs. What's going on guys? Hope everyone's having a glorious week so far. We are going to be jumping into the shoulder today. So last week we got a lot of good feedback talking about the knee, why it's so important to load your squats, your lunges, all that other stuff, even if you've you know had experience with arthritis, you know, quote, bone on bone, stuff like that. So we're going to kind of work into the shoulder today because that's another real common uh, place that people tend to uh, run into issues with. Yeah, and as, as Adam said, we got a lot of good feedback. Uh, this wasn't our intention to, to move through uh, another body part this week, but uh, a lot of people seem to enjoy it. So, you know, we're going to try to work through the more common body regions that we'll see that get injured. And, and really, you know, we want you to remember as we go through this, we want you guys to understand to one, not be a prisoner of your diagnosis. You know, that that's goal number one. And hopefully by the end of the show, you guys have an understanding of what it's not, what it probably is, and then what you yourselves can do with it. You know, because really at the end of the day, and I've said this before, you can be your own PT. I love it when people don't have to come see me because that means I've educated them. That means Adam's educated them. That means we've gotten you guys to the point that you feel confident that you can tackle this on your own. At the end of the day, really what what Adam provides with strength, conditioning, uh, agility, reactive neuromuscular control, you know, really it's the same thing that I offer as well. I generally just, people start with pain, but our tenants are the same. Let's maximize range of motion, maximize strength, and let's optimize function. And as long as we can do those three things without stirring up irritability, everyone tends to get better. We adapt and we change. So we just want to make everyone more resilient so that you can push yourselves harder and for longer. Yeah, and so Ross, the one thing, and I just kind of want to see where your head at. I'm wondering if your head is in the same place as mine is. It's kind of setting the table a little bit. If you had to pick, and this is a little bit of a little bit of a hint based on what we're talking about already, but if you had to pick one of the functional human movements, so quad, core, you know, push, pull, all that stuff, that is probably the least, and there's a reason I'm saying this, the least necessary, functionally, What do you, which one would you pick? Oh, boy. Well, when you say quad and core, we have to remember that we're talking about more of a system than an isolated region. Right. Okay. So, like, let me, let me, let me, uh, so, like, in your everyday life, mm-hmm. which one do you probably use the least of, like, the common movements? Hmm. Well, this is where my, my, the gray part of my mind is saying, well, we can justify this, we can justify that. Because right. when you look at it from, you know, again, knee dominant patterns, hip dominant patterns, pushing yeah. patterns, pulling patterns, our, our body, because we're bipedal and we're weight bearing, we use our hip dominant and knee dominant patterns probably the most because yep. we have to walk. Um, and because of based on hunter gatherers, we do more of pushing than pulling. Okay. Now, with that said, if I have to drag something back to the cave, I have to pull. Right. But the way our body was set up from a hunter-gatherer, you know, our, our the muscles in the front of us, so our pushing muscles, were actually a more dominant one for throwing and, and things like that for hunting. Um, in today's world, where we don't have to hunt, that's going to be a little bit different. The reason I bring it up is, so we're going to be talking a lot about the shoulder today, right? And I think that, to me, push in today's day and age is the least, I don't want to say like the least necessary. I'm not saying don't train it. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing it. The reason I'm bringing this up is because pushing, whether it's bench press, whether it's overhead press, is something that it is often very difficult to stop people from pushing through. Pain. Pushing through pain. Oh. I realize this is a long-winded way of me saying that if you have pain or something like that, that's where a lot of these things come into it. But you should take a step back. Oh, absolutely. You should work on your... I mean, and we talk about that, but, you know, I think it's always funny that people will have shoulder pain, push out the press overhead. Does that hurt? Yep. And then you turn around and they're still pressing overhead. And then we're like, okay, so now let's come over to the deadlifts and... Oh, I can't do that much. I don't want to hurt my back. It's just a funny, like, 
And the only reason I'm bringing this up is not because I'm saying you shouldn't press overhead, you shouldn't press, but just that one tends to be the one in my experience that people are just like, eh, it hurts, I'm just going to push through it and I'm not really going to do anything about it. Well, I'd also say that, but why Why do you also suppose that people put such um, emphasis on, on chest and the pushing muscles in general? I mean, I honestly, when it comes to the overhead stuff, that I honestly, I don't know. When it comes to the press, I think more, you know, typical male bench press, big chest muscles, that kind of thing. It's the, mus- uh, it's the muscles you can see. It's right, the muscle. it, right. And I mean, uh, again, I'm not saying they're not important in any way, shape, or form. I'm just kind of trying to set the table that if you have pain there, then you should be working your way back to being able to press by getting your range of motion. Oh, absolutely. That, that's just kind of what I'm getting at, which is the same for any other body part that we talk about. But in my experience, and I don't know if it's the same for you, that shoulder pain is the one that are most most people are not likely to take seriously until they're in so much pain that they literally can't move their arm. Well, that too. And I think because it's a non-weight-bearing joint, people are more likely to cheat and compensate, not use the arm, not reach overhead, or do it in ways that have become more harmful down the road. Um, but I certainly can understand, um, you know, but I think because of the postures we put ourselves into, the habits that we take, just the natural curvature of our spine, we have such an overdominance with our, our pushing muscles to mm. begin with that people are just automatically stronger there to begin with, you know, and, and they're bigger, the type 2 muscle fibers versus type 1s, our, our front muscles are more the hunting muscles, our back muscles are more the, the controllers, the fine tuners. Um, so I think it's just easier for people to do that. Plus, you know, you, you type in men's health, you type in anything, yeah. you know, what's the first thing they show you? You got to do your bench press. Right. When in all reality, if you want a pushing movement, just do a push up. Right. No, no, that's too hard. Shit. Like, so isn't the <laughs> bench press. Like, it's just the difference. You can use 20 pound dumbbells compared to pushing 70% of your weight off the ground. But, you know, if we really look at push ups, push ups are a far better stabilizing exercise compared to a bench press. So it, it's just, it's the mindset that people have towards those those muscle groups. Yeah, so sorry to kind of jump off topic there, but um, so kind of moving into, we'll move into the next part, kind of jumping in. If you want to give us a, a very basic shoulder anatomy breakdown. Obviously there's so much in there. There's so much in there. Yeah, so you know, if we're, we're trying to orient ourselves, and I'll do this best I can so that everyone who's listening can kind of get an idea. You know, when, when everyone grabs onto their shoulder itself, you know, that, that's going to be what's called the humeral head. That's going to be the top of our arm bone. That is what sits into the socket. So if they just followed their arm up, they'll feel a little bump at the top. That's our AC joint. And then underneath that would be our glenoid cavity. cavity and that's where the humeral head sits. Now, the humeral head is three times larger than the socket. So imagine... Uh, a golf ball sitting on a tee. So it's a very unstable joint to begin with, but then we have a labrum that sits around the socket itself, and that labrum is really just a piece of fibrocartilage that increases the depth of the socket to provide stability. You know, on top of that, so we have our AC joint, which is the acromion and the uh, clavicle, which come in, and that creates the subacromial arch, and that's a little tunnel that the supraspinatus comes into. So we have a rotator cuff, muscle that sits there, so the supraspinatus, and there's four of them, the supraspinatus, subscapularis, teres minor, and infraspinatus. If you were to just take your four fingers and just loop them over the top like that, that's exactly how they're going to sit. Towards the front of the arm bone, we have our bicep tendon, so even if you were to just dig around, you'll feel your hand popping over it. That's going to be the bicep tendon. That actually attaches into the top portion of the labrum. Uh, We have one of the heads of the tricep in the back that come in, attached to the inferior portion or the bottom portion of the, the glenoid or the, uh, the socket. And then the other piece actually attaches onto the shoulder blade. Now, if we look at the front of the shoulder where the bicep sits, we also have to consider our large chest muscle comes over and attaches over the bicep. Then our lats, our pull-up muscles, come from the backside of us, sneak underneath the arm and attaches underneath the bicep groove then we have another shoulder muscle called the teres uh, major, which then hooks right on the inside of the lats. So really think of the front of the shoulder as you know 12 different highway systems crossing over itself. So that's why it's very hard to say what one pain generator is 
because there's so many structures in the area, which is why you're also seeing him change the term now. They try not to call it impingement anymore. They call it subacromial pain syndrome. So it, it's all they're saying is there's pain there. We just don't know what. Now, then we also have the upper trapezius or the traps for short. It attaches from the most outer edge of the shoulder blade, comes across, goes along the side of the neck, and then goes down to the top of our shoulder blade. So that's the upper portion. Uh, and that's going to stabilize the neck or stabilize the shoulder, depending on what we're working with. And then we have some smaller um, muscles along the area that provide either stability at the, at the mid-back, the shoulder blade, or the, or the neck. So that, that's at least a, a brief overview. I know for people at home listening, uh, it's a lot. You know, but if you were to just Google shoulder anatomy, you know, you'll at least be able to see there's a lot going on there. You know, I'm not doing any justice by just keeping it as simple as can be. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people don't realize they think of the shoulder as like, just like you think of the hip. And actually the shoulder is a lot more shallow of a joint, which is why it requires so much more stabilization, why, you know, you can so much more easily run into shoulder pain. And, you know, if you hear about people that have consistent you know, have the um, propensity for dislocations and stuff. Its shoulders are a lot more common. It's it's pretty difficult to get a dislocation at your hip. Generally, um, generally there has to be some type of a congenital deformity, or there has to be some type of a traumatic event that actually occurred. Right. So it, there's just there's so much going on in there, and I think you know you talked about it a little bit. It, the first important point that we're going to jump into today. Um, or that we're, we're kind of jumping into right now is that the rotator cuff, it, it's kind of misconstrued as if it's one thing. <laughs> you know, it, it's often, I'm sure you see plenty of patients that come in. I see clients that come in. Oh, I have, uh, you know, they think I tore my rotator cuff or I think, you know, they think I might have a slight rotator cuff tear. And I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's one of those things where it's commonly, it, it's kind of like the quads. Yeah. Like if you came, if somebody came in and said, I have a quad tear. Okay, well, the quad, I mean, it's easy with the quad because that's, quad means that's four. Bad. That's bad. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, like, people kind of get that quad is made up of multiple muscles. Yeah. But you hear rotator cuff and you think it's one. In fact, you could have tears, strains, pulls at, again, he said there are four different muscles that involve, that are, make up the rotator cuff. So that's the first part. Yeah, and... The two common ones that get strained or torn are going to be the supraspinatus and the infraspinatus. And then the, the next common one is the subscapularis. So um, can be due to injury. It can be due to repetitive stress. But as you were talking about the rotator cuff, uh, I was smiling like an idiot because it just it, all the people that call it everything but rotator cuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and I always love it when people come in like, I got a rotor cuff problem. <laughs> it's like a rotor cuff problem. If you got a rotor cuff, you got a serious problem. You need to worry about that. Um, but that, you know, you were talking about patients that come in and say, I have, a, I have a small tear. This brings up a good example. I had a patient yesterday, hurt his shoulder a year ago, went and got an MRI, confirmed full thickness tear of the supraspinatus, right through, like tendon, gone. The muscle retracted back has fatty infiltration. You cannot repair a torn rotator cuff when it's like that. Once fat fills in the area, mm-hmm. there's no hope. You're eventually due for a rotator or a shoulder replacement. He's been doing his own rehab exercises. He's doing Pilates. He's still playing hockey. He's doing everything that he wants to. Full range of motion, good strength. He did other PT at other places. And he says, I'm really just having this pain right here. And the pain, and for those of you at home, I'm pointing to the front of my shoulder, nowhere near the supraspinatus. He said, when I'm moving my arm, I'm getting this burning sensation right here. I'm like, ah, that's, that's weird. That's, that's not where your supraspinatus is. Your, your supraspinatus, and it's, it's gone. Like, right, yeah. There's no pain there anymore. There's nothing to tear. <laughs> there's, nothing to, there's nothing to hurt. <laughs> sure. So because it's been a year now, He's been using so many compensatory actions. As soon as I asked him to lift his arm, his upper trap went high. He's using everything but to to now increase his arm elevation. Um, And then he said, if I do this and this, that brings on the burning. And at home, I'm lifting my arm and rotating it down. So basically what he was doing is he was taking the anterior deltoid and the, uh, the bicep, creating flexion. And then the rotating it was basically pinching it off, creating an impingement. Okay. So... That's a case where it's like, this is not a rotator cuff problem. Like, Annie has a partial tear of the infraspinatus, according to, to MRI. It's like, you have good strength. 
you have no supraspinatus, you're still doing everything, what's the big deal? Like, keep doing it. So I just gave him some targeted exercises and, and told him that it's probably going to be, you know, any 12 to 14 weeks of full healing, but he's probably going to feel better in six, um, that we just got to kind of remodel the tissue right there. You know, and it's, it's no different than what we talked about with the knee, except we're talking about soft tissue in this gentleman. And with knee arthritis, we're talking about actual bone-on-bone hard tissue. But that's a great example. Like, we have confirmation of a full thickness tear right through the tendon. Nothing's left. Fatty infiltration. Probably should have got surgery back when it started. Or he would have been a candidate for it. Not that I would have sent him. Um, But he's doing everything he wants. Mm -hmm. Great. Awesome. Like, you're making my job easy. Come back in a couple weeks. I'll see you then. Um, but he's also not letting it stop him. Right. That's really the big thing. You know, his pain is only getting to about a five, you know, but he has realistic expectations, you know, and I explained to him, I said, your, your rotator cuff, especially the supraspinatus, really initiates the, the moment of lifting. And then usually your deltoid takes over. You don't have that anymore. So if the four muscles all have a 25% um, prevalence, but then you tear one, now the other three now have they have to increase how much they work you know they all have 33 percent effort now you know so they're going to be fatigued they're they're not going to have the work capacity and tolerance that we would expect as if you had four of them um and he understood that you know and he he's willing to do all the strengthening that he needs to and he's going to do just fine based off of his understanding of what's going on and the function he's allowed himself to get back to Whereas if he went with the recommendations, and actually he is a very good surgeon in the area, the surgeon said, don't stop anything. Keep doing it. If you stop, you're going to get worse. Mm-hmm. So that that blew my mind. I'm like, this is awesome. Because if you went to another place that everyone goes to, they would have said, don't do this or don't do that. Or they probably would have signed him up for surgery. Right. And I mean, I think it, it – and you talked about managing expectations. And it's, you know, one road – yeah, maybe the guy isn't going to be going out throwing 85, 95 miles an hour as a pitcher. Doesn't mean he can't throw a baseball ever yeah. again. Doesn't can mean he, you can can't he play, play catch hockey. with the grandkids. Doesn't mean, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess unless you're, you know, you're that hardo dad that puts their, their kid up against the backstop and throws 95 <laughs> mile an hour fastballs at him. I guess unless, I guess maybe that guy's in a bit of trouble. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, for, and this gentleman's 65, 66 you know, very fit, you know, and, and I said, I said, listen, you know, you're not old. And he's like, I understand I'm, I'm such and such an age. I'm like, don't let it be the excuse. Yeah. You know, this is the first time you've ever had a shoulder issue. Be happy, you know, cause most people are like, why me? Why now? And it's like, well, why not you? Why not now? You know, just you've done something right to be 65 and have something go wrong. Cause there are people half his age that have the same shit going on, if not worse. Right. So he's done something right up to this point. So, you know, it's like when I have the little old ladies that come in, 78, 80. I've never had back pain before. Why now? What did I do? You didn't do anything. You lived life and it took 78 years to cause back pain? <laughs> That's a pretty damn good job. Yeah, exactly. Tell me your secrets. Right, right yeah. You know, I started you having tell back me. pain at freaking 21. So... Um, you know, and, and that's just changing someone's mindset. You know, you've been doing something right. We should all only be so lucky. So, um, you know, but helping people understand that is the, the important part. So, you know, everyone's scared. I'm going to tear my rotator cuff. I'm going to tear my rotator cuff. Um, how many people, you know, and I, we may have talked about this a couple, a couple podcasts back. There are so many asymptomatic individuals that have structural deformities it's, it's astounding. And I always go back to the study they did in the UK, I believe it was 2015. 50,000 men, they fought, they did the, an ultrasound study on diagnostic ultrasound between the ages of 18 and I think it was 50 or 65, somewhere around there. Regardless of the age, 96% of them had something wrong on ultrasound, but no pain. 96. <laughs> so randomly, you can take 10 people off the street and 9.6 of them out of 10 are going to have something wrong. No pain. It astounds me. You know, so again, when we go to the orthos, when we go get x-rays, is what they're finding actually the problem or is it just something that they can give a name to? 
Because if they can't give a name to it, they probably can't treat it. And if they can't treat it, they don't know what to do to you. And, and that's that's the sad part, you know. And a lot of them just get to the point, ah, it's pingement. When you lift your arm, this hits this. So don't do X, Y, and Z. All right. For how long? What else can I do? What should I be doing? Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, just don't do that. I'll see you in four weeks. No. Like, that's the worst piece of advice I... I could give someone like it awful, you know, people come in, well, so-and-so told me not to do this bullshit. We're going to do it. I'm just going to find you a way that's a little bit safer. We should be able to modify most activities that people get. Now, if someone says, I like flipping upside down and walking on my hands, (laughs) uh, I'm not going to be able to modify that one for you. The shoulder's not a weight bearing joint to begin with. So we're going to have to wait. You know, that's a, that's a case where I'd have to get them overhead pressing first. Right. And then I'd have to flip them upside down and get them walking uh, on their hands. So it's just, it, it's, it amazes me. Actually, it shouldn't amaze me at this point because so many people are just, it's the fear mongering. It's the apprehension that comes along with it because they don't know any better. Right. But that's, right. but that's our goal today is to educate you. So you guys don't have to worry. We have to remember that hurt doesn't equal harm. And when pain is present, it doesn't mean that you've damaged anything. It's really, it's your body trying to warn you that, you know, listen, this is a little sensitive. If you don't do anything about it, it could potentially get worse. Is that an inevitability? No, it is not. It just means that we need to pay attention. Let's try to correct it. You know, very similar to the back and the knee. And and I've said that when someone has a knee problem, oftentimes the knee is the victim. Something else has gone wrong. Same thing with the low back. When someone has low back pain, it's generally a movement dysfunction. When someone has shoulder pain, the shoulder is often the victim. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of mobility there, but it's not, it's not a stable joint at all. So again, the compensation patterns that occur just go on for days, you know, and people blame, well, it's my posture, perhaps, you know, but again, is it the habit of bad posture, you know, and that, that's what leads people in, you know, and that's why PTs, oh, it's your, it's your upper cross syndrome. You know, an upper cross syndrome is defined as forward head, rounded shoulder, tight pecs, stretched out weak back muscles, my neck muscles, the superficial neck flexors, the one on top are too tight, the deep neck flexors that pull my head back, can't do their job. And, oh, it's, it's, it's upper cross. We'll just do this and you'll be fine. If they don't change the habit, it's not going to correct anything. So you, you, can, you can give them all the best exercises in the world. But if they're only doing those exercises for three minutes and they don't correct anything else, it's the habit of whatever we're talking about that's causing the issue. So it's like when people go get massages. Oh, I feel great after the massage, but it always comes back. Okay. Think of massage as a neural reset. You're hitting the reset button. Control, alt, delete momentarily. That is your opportunity to create a new habit. If you don't, you're just going to fall right back into that bad pattern. And then it's that bad pattern that builds another bad pattern, which leads to another bad pattern, which then leads to abnormal stress on healthy tissue. And then that's when we have a lot of these repetitive stress injuries. So, Yeah, and I think, you know, you're talking about habit and all that stuff. I mean, it's kind of, we, we, we've talked about it in some form in all, you know, pretty much every podcast we've had, at least at some point. It just it's just the way that we especially when we talk about upper cross. I mean, and it's not necessarily like, oh, you're super sedentary. You don't do anything, and blah 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 blah. blah. Or no, I mean, you have we have you know clients here that are are doctors. They work in you know they work in the ER. They're in surgery. They're you know all this other stuff, and then you know dental hygienists. They they spend time in front of them. Everything is rounded forward. We spend a lot of time. On our computers, we drive in a forward posture, all that stuff. So, like, when you're talking about that, it's not that you're super sedentary. It's, a, it's, it's thinking that you can, you're going to offset eight hours of being contracted forward by only doing, you know, a three-minute mobility thing once or twice a week. You have to do, I mean, just think about it common sense wise. It's too much one and not the other. Well, let's say, let's say even someone shows up here four nights a week to work out. If they're not really paying attention to their posture 100%, Mm. you know, and and, eh, maybe I don't want to use the word posture. If they're not creating 
neuromuscular efficiency and, and using the muscles that'll help to offset that bad stress, they're not doing anything to help. Right. So again, even people that work out, oh, well, I work out four days a week, you know, my posture's still bad, I still have this pain. We have to create awareness, mindfulness, I don't care what you call it. You have to be present, you have to, are the muscles working that should be working? You know, someone comes in with shoulder impingement. You know, I lift my arm between 70 and 120 degrees, ouch, ouch, there's my pain. Okay, pull your shoulder blade back. Instantly when I ask people that, they raise up their upper trap. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm, I'm not a genius, but that looks like up, not back. Right. And then you finally show them, that, oh, that feels weird. Well, yeah, because you, you live hunched forward. Yeah. Like, hunch back in Notre Dame. Like, we don't want that. We want the reverse of that. But it's very common. You know, think of, like, fetal development. We're in that hunched position. Think about when we hurt our arm. We bend our, our elbow. We tuck it into ourselves. And then we round our shoulder forward. Guys get kicked in the balls. We get we come back to that fetal position. Everything leads to a flexor synergy. Yeah. Everything builds us in that position. Gravity pulls us in that position. The curves of our spine are built that way. So it, it's not, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. But are there simple and effective things that we can do to offset that stress? We're not correcting. We're merely offsetting stress. When people say, I sit, I know I sit poorly. My, my posture is bad when I sit. Sitting is benign. I can't stress that enough. Sitting itself is, is not bad for us. It's what we do outside of sitting. So if you sit at work, sit for the ride home, sit at dinner, sit on the couch, go to bed, get up, rinse, repeat, do it all over again, that's what's bad for us. Mm-hmm. You know, and then... We have some type of intolerance. We build up a sensitivity in our back. Now, all of a sudden, we're putting abnormal loads on healthy tissue. We create sensitivity, which then leads to that pain level. So, again, it's a high amount of stress that needs to occur, assuming that there's no traumatic event or specific mechanism of injury. You know, you see a lot of people with persistent pain. They look at a chair and they're like, hmm, sitting hurts. So is it the act of sitting that hurts or is it your perception of sitting that hurts? Now it's a whole new fucking ball game. Right. Now it may not even be a pathoanatomical diagnosis. Now it's that the body's ramped itself up so much, there, there's so, the nervous system is haywire that even just thinking about sitting hurts. You know, people with persistent pain, even shoulder pain, it's like say I had persistent shoulder pain for nine years now. You know, if I saw you bump your shoulder on that wall, my shoulder would probably hurt yep. because now my brain is detecting threat. That's my perception. It's it's just wild, and, and it's why you can. It's why people get phantom limb pain because the body's still detecting it, even if something's not there. So then you can trick it by doing mirror therapy. Take a mirror, use your non-amputated hand in the mirror, and it makes your body believe that the the image is there now, and you can you can trick it. That's, that's crazy. Cool. I never knew that. Yeah, it's that's called, wicked cool. It's called mirror therapy. I mean, like, yeah, that's that's yeah. crazy. So, like, if when someone has, and this is getting off track, but I think it's cool. Adam's involved now, so he's <laughs> enthralled. Yeah. So if if I ampu- if my left hand was amputated yeah. for some reason, the the signal to my brain is still there. The right. Cells on my brain on the homunculus is still there. It's called a cortical map. So other parts of the brain could stimulate that area, or it may feel like it's still there. So I can put a mirror in front of that left hand and put my right hand in front of it. So now it looks like my left hand. Yeah. And I can move my right hand around, but look at the left hand. And now my brain is saying, my hand's okay. That's nuts. Yeah. That's wicked cool. Yeah. So now what that does, it actually, it's called cortical smudging. After a while, if you have persistent pain or you haven't had a body part or you've had a persistent injury, your brain can't really see the body part anymore. But when we actually increase that signal, your body has a better represent your brain has a better representation of that body region. That's it's, crazy. It's wild. That is that is wicked cool. They're suggesting that that's one of the reasons why we have so much back pain in our society, because when we look at the cortical map, so basically what someone did is they went through and they poked different parts of the brain mm-hmm. and they saw where on the body that things were we could feel it. The back is not represented in that cortical map. 
So like the hands and feet are, the face are, the genitals are, um, different body regions, the lips, you know, places that have a lot of sensitivity. But they're suggesting that our low back, because it's not represented on that body map, on the body schema, that that's one of the reasons we just don't have a good clear image, you know, think our mirror muscles, you know, that our back is not one of our mirror muscles. So our, our brain over time loses that image and, and we have to sharpen it over time. That's by, crazy. That's by crazy. using it. Yeah. That's kind of, it's, it's, and I promise I, I'll, I'll get it back to, but since you're coming, you're talking about like the mirror and it kind of makes me think of, I remember hearing on a, a podcast, I mean, I won't get too off, off topic, but he was talking about like, I don't remember what the topic exactly was of the podcast, but um, like when people f- think that somebody's behind them, they get that feeling that something's behind them. And he was talking about, there have been studies that showed that the, one of the reasons that can happen is if somebody has a really – if their kinesthetic awareness is not there, their sense of – and what that means is the, your sense of where your body is in space. So like if, I, if I'm if i not looking at my left hand and I lift it up, I kind of have an – my brain imagines about where that limb is in space. So people that have really bad kinesthetic awareness think that there's someone behind them when really their brain is actually just off on where their body is in space. Mm. And that is, I don't know, it's just crazy. Sorry, we can get back to the shoulder. But that the mirror thing made me think of that. No, That's... I mean, keep talking kinesthetic awareness. Again, <laughs> it's, it's love language. Right. It's, it's beautiful. But... Uh, that's one of the things that we do when, when we think some people have a joint position error is we move their body part through space and we say, am I moving you up, down, left, or right? And they should be able to tell. And mm-hmm. some people can't. Um, it, it makes me think of something else. When someone has persistent pain and more so the research, again, is geared towards low back pain, um, but we look at two-point discrimination. So we take a prong that has two points to it and we push it along the spine. You know, How many points do you feel? Is this two or one? And people that have persistent back pain usually get it wrong. Usually when the two prongs poke into them, they'll say, that's one, that's one, that's one, that's one. And they'll be completely wrong. Now, if we can improve that body map in their brain, they'll start to be able to differentiate between two and one all over again. So it's just kind of wild. So you could take a paper clip, bend it, so that's two prongs. All right, how many points do you feel? One. One, it's like, oh, they're completely wrong. This is messed up. Yeah. And so they have to build that awareness back up over time, which can be done. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. All right. So let's jump back into, I don't even know where we were before we talked about the, the rotator topic, cuff but... and all that wonderful stuff. So let's move into kind of our next thing, talking about the, the trap, the trapezius, the one that kind of your, for lack of a better way to put it, your stress muscle. So whenever you look at someone especially when they're stressed, it basically looks like they're trying to wear their shoulders as earmuffs. The muscle that does that for you is called your upper trapezius. Now, that muscle is so big and so strong, and actually when we look at the full anatomy of the trapezius, there's the upper trap, the mid trap, and the low trap. So if you were to look at someone from behind, it attaches from the base of our skull, comes out in like a triangle or like a diamond shape actually, out to the corners of the shoulders, and then comes down to our mid back. Very big, very robust muscle, and they all have to work together. The bigger proportion, uh, the bigger portion of the muscle, the upper trapezius, creates neck motion, shoulder blade motion, and shoulder stability. So three actions in multiple planes. Now the only problem is, because of the vertical orientation of the fibers, it's fighting gravity. Gravity pushes down on us. The upper trap hikes everything back up. We don't want it to be that way. But let's say we're carrying something, like a bag or a purse or something along those lines. Well, now the bag, the external weight, pulls the shoulder down. Oh, what do you know? I can use my upper trap and I can, I can make a shelf. I can hold on more. Or we bend forward. Well, now I need to support my neck from falling forward even more. So what do I do? I turn on my upper trap to create stability. So it, it, these are just very, very common compensation patterns that we see. Now, most people that, that, I won't say most, I have a lot of people that come in and say, I think my upper trap is weak. Adam, when in your life have you ever seen a weak upper trap? Never. Never. (laughs) Effing never. They may not big. They may not be uh, hypertrophic. They may not be uh, large and robust. And that's mostly depends on genetics. But I've never seen an upper trap that's weak. It, it covers far too many body parts. So 
I rarely ever tell people at the gym to do shrugs. People do that purely just for aesthetics. They want big traps. However, they're compressing their cervical spine when they do that. They pull up and they're just compressing the whole time. You're asking for a problem. You're better off just doing deadlifts and, and holding the bar. <laughs> now, what I try to explain to people is you need all of the portions of the upper trap or the traps themselves to work together. You know, think of it as, a, as an orchestra. Everything needs to play together. The stronger one muscle or one portion of the muscle becomes, the other ones have to shut down. And that's just, that's neurologic efficiency. It's energy conservation. If my upper traps become, in theory, a plus one, my mid trap and my low trap have to become a minus one. It's even keel. It's equilibrium. It's homeostasis, allostasis. I don't care what the hell you want to call it. Your body has to find a center point at that point in time. And it does that by making one muscle stronger and one muscle weaker. So most people say I have to make my upper traps stronger. Well, your upper traps probably feel weak because they're turned on 300% of the time. So now they're just very fatigable, but they're not weak. So what we have to do is we have to make the other muscles actually do what they're supposed to. You know, and that's when we get in and we start working on low trap raises, mid trap raises, just rows in general. Because the second, anytime someone comes into the clinic and they're just sitting here, I feel their upper traps when they're in a rounded posture. The upper traps are rock solid. The second that I pull them into a more neutral position, good curvature in their low spine, normal thoracic curve, wouldn't you know the upper traps aren't as tight? Uh, that we're giving them a moment of relaxation. Ears over the shoulder, shoulders over the hips. Again, all I did was just ask them to stack the blocks directly on itself. When we're out in the gym and we're training ourselves, we want to stack the blocks as far as the head, shoulder, and the hip is concerned. Athletic ready position is a little bit different with the ankle and the knee position, so that's not going to be the point of this conversation. But if we can just align things a little bit better, the upper trap doesn't have to take over. But that's, it's, it's the most common, besides the pec, mm-hmm. it's the most common muscle that's going to cheat and compensate for us because it's so big and strong to begin with. Yeah, and and... I think that a lot of times, too, people don't, people, the one thing I'll notice if I have been, I don't know, I don't know if you want to say overcompensating, I guess that it's traps because I've had you work on my shoulders before and that has tended to be the issue, but on a day after maybe I've done like a heavy, heavy, you know, arm day or something like that, every once in a while I'll wake up with headaches and a lot of times I can be just straight up. And then, you know, I nail my traps with a lacrosse ball or something like that, or you work on it. And, I mean, we talked about it, right? It, it, it connects at the base of your skull. So if you're creating tension that close to, you know, all the muscles that run along, those that's where a lot of times those tension headaches and those, in quote, stress headaches can come from. It's such a big stress muscle. If that's constantly turned on and there's constantly tension... I mean, I'll tell people when we, you know, every now and again, we're doing a, uh, you know, work with a lacrosse ball or something like that, or we, um, you know, in quotes, roll the neck. We're not actually like putting the foam roller and putting all our body weight on our neck. It's just like, it's behind the neck and you kind of turn your head side to side. Yeah. Like these are good things to do if you're somebody that consistently has headaches or you wake up because a lot of times it, it can be you know, tension related, it, you know, it can be water and all that other stuff, but of course, but if you're consistently having headaches and you're consistently stressed, it's something you can check off the list fairly easily. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, usually if even just unweighting, so if someone were sitting in a chair that has arms, putting your arms, putting your arms on the arms of the chair actually helps relieve the upper traps from having to do it. If that takes away your symptoms, you know what it is. Right, it's nice and simple. Whereas if it's some uh, migraine or something like that, it's not really going to have a have an effect. Right, right. Um, but I I always tell people, you know, especially if you're getting a, a headache that starts at the base of your skull and wraps up and over your head, you know, that's that's called a ram's horn distribution. It's a tension type headache. It's coming from all those type muscles. You have your upper traps. You have your your cervical paraspinals. Your your suboccipitals that sit right underneath your skull. And when they become really tight, what do they do? They round us forward and they poke our chin straight out. And then we get more compression in our neck. And now just imagine doing this over 30, 40 years. You know, that's more likely to put abnormal stress on the nerve, on the foramen, potentially cause some type of stenosis. But that's 30, 40 years down the road. 
So for people in their 40s, oh, I have degenerative changes. Yeah, yeah, we all do. Congratulations. Welcome to the club. <laughs> you know, let's let's throw a party now. You know, so I'm not saying we're we're going to discount what we see on on film, but if what is on film does not add up to the way that someone presents, then we need to try to maximize their function at all costs. Right. You know, there's just there's no if ands or, or buts about it. You know, you see a lot of people that come in, and, and you know, you you do a, an intake on them, and you want to know their injury history. So when when someone comes in and says, "Oh, I have I have this this shoulder thing," you know, how do you how do you go about starting someone? You know, yeah. So usually, if somebody comes in and they have like shoulder pain or shoulder thing, I'm just seeing like what what exact might exacerbate some of the symptoms. Um, you know, we're never like, all right, your shoulder hurts. Here's a 50-pound dumbbell. I want you to try and push that up over your head and just, you know, see what happens. Whatever. No, but I mean, like, if, if they – I'm looking at things like rows and stuff like that, too. If, if a row can tell you a lot about what somebody's shoulder mechanics is. I mean, you talked about it a little bit already. I'd say more often than not, when I see somebody try and do a row, they, they bring – they shrug up. Oh yeah, or they or the the shoulder more accurately. They keep trying to drive their elbow back and their their shoulder tips forward. Correct. So, what are they doing there? Just how are they standing when they walk in the door? There are some people you're like, they're like, oh yeah, I have this shoulder thing, and you're like, gee, I I can't figure out why. For those of you at home, I like my my like deltoids are touching my ears right now, and it, you're like, okay, I can I can totally understand why you'd have a shoulder thing. Um, or they're just really, really internally rotated, like eight man rotated, yeah. like totally, um, forward pot, all that sort of stuff. And you're like, okay, yeah, I can understand why you have a shoulder thing. Let's see. After we get through the warm up, we get through, you know, um, the rolling, the stretching, the activation stuff. If you still have pain, then I mean like, well, let's see what the posture looks like. You know, then it might, then it's probably strength on top of that. Um. So if, if, and I agree with all that, I pretty much follow the same, same path. Now, let's say you, you give them cueing for good posture. You, you teach them how to do rows the right way. Mm -hmm. Say they call you up the next day or two days later and they say, you know, uh, Adam, in between my shoulder blades are really sore. Um, should I be worried? No. Why? Because if you're somebody who's in a constantly forward rounded posture, a constantly elevated posture where your traps are turned on or whatever, or you're, you know, all, basically the front side of your body is hyper contracted, then those muscles are constantly extended. So if those muscles are, con you talked about it earlier, the, when a muscle is constantly extended, it's weaker. So if you're ever at the gym and somebody talks about doing eccentrics, negatives, it basically just means you're doing the lowering or the out or whatever portion slower. You're never going to be as sore as you are when you do eccentrics. And that's because the muscle is designed to be neutral. I mean, it, it, the phase of it is eccentric. It has to control the lengthening. But your muscle is strongest when contracting, not when lengthening. So if you have a muscle that's consistently lengthened, like the muscles between your shoulder blade and your spine, and then I bring you in, we, we get you out of that into a more neutral posture, meaning you're not leaned forward, your shoulders are kind of like, if you were to look at the side, it would be a straight line, not like, or sorry, I should say, you, if you were looking down overhead, it would be almost a straight line rather than like a C shape. Then those muscles that have been extended for super long periods of time are going to be sore as shit. Or they're just so weak that when I finally taught you how to actually contract them, you you basically, I don't want to say overworked because that's that's not quite the right way to put it, but it's essentially what they, happened. They use them in a manner that they're not accustomed to. Right. They've exceeded their thresholds. And it's basically, a, it's, it's a slight strain, but we did not do any damage to them. Right. You know, it's perfectly normal. I can't stress that enough because I tell patients that all the time. We're going to do things with these muscles that you're not accustomed to. It's going to be sore, but we are not hurting you. We are not damaging you. It's muscle soreness. If it's equal on both sides, don't worry about it. You know, keep going. 
you know, maybe you wait on that muscle group for two to three days, let it calm down a little bit more. It's called delayed onset muscle soreness. That will get better with time. Whereas if you did a back workout and all of a sudden your shoulder's killing you, all right, is that the shoulder pain that brought you in or, or is that the shoulder pain that you were reporting? Because um, that means that they weren't doing the exercise correctly. So, you know, that's that, that, that went beautiful. I couldn't have planned that part of the conversation any better <laughs> if I tried. So, um, but that's, I was hoping you were going to say it and I figured you would, but it, we, we, that's important for everyone to know. You know, when we start using something correctly, it's probably going to be sore. And that's just because we need to build up tolerance. And the only way we do in that is by stressing ourselves. So we add load, we increase capacity. Stress adaptation. You know, it's, it's no different than um, the stress adaptation model. I forget the name of it. But, you know, you, you push your body a little bit, your body responds to it. Mm-hmm. You push your body a little bit more, it responds a little bit more. If you take away stress... Oh, guess what? Your body gets rid of some of that adaptation because it doesn't need it. So we need to constantly keep pushing ourselves. That's it's huge for us to remember that we get, we got to keep going. Once the second we become good at something, we have to strive to be to challenge ourselves more to keep going. Uh, you know, frankly, in this in this society we live in, we shouldn't strive to be average. We, we should always strive to do a little bit better each time, you know, and that's no different for, for anything that we talk about. But in here, we're, we're talking about health and function and, and, and rehab, wellness, whatever you choose to call it. I mean, and if you think about it too, like all this stuff, it it applies to everything that you do. Like we, we tend to only think about it when it comes to practice. It's like, okay, well, exercise isn't the same. No, it's exactly the same. It's it's kind of like if you're a really good artist, you draw really well. I wouldn't know what that's about because I am a terrible artist. Awful. It's just not my forte. But if I was somebody that was really good at drawing or painting or whatever, and, you know, I did it through college and then, you know, the real world hit me and I stopped, you know, doing it as much. And then 10 years go by and I decide I want to go back to it. I'm going to be rusty because I just haven't done it in a while. It is no different. And I mean, like, it that right there is muscular patterning. It's kinesthetic awareness. It's knowing where the hand is and where the where the pen will be on the paper in response to what your brain wants you to draw. It's, it is no different than any other skill. It has to be something that's practiced. If you want to decrease shoulder pain, you have to practice the things that are going to decrease shoulder pain. It... it it's no different. Now, whenever we're in pain, there's always that that worry that something's wrong. There's always the worry, can I make it worse? You know, so that's even even seeing someone to at least get that security, you know, to, to get that reassurance. Because really, at the end of the day, patience, it comes down to what's wrong with me? How long is it going to take? What can I do about it? What can you do about it? So if we can answer those questions, usually people feel pretty good. And, and, and that's, I'd say more often than not, you know, and especially from the, the members that you guys send me, a lot of them say, I just feel better knowing that this isn't a big problem. Great. And based off of that alone, we lowered that fear factor. Chances are they're going to be just fine outside of a traumatic event. And that's what we want to do. You know, so... When someone has pain, we have to deal with the fact that pain is present. But what's causing it? How irritable is it? So how long does it take to set it off? How long does it take to calm back down? And what can I do about it? You know. And again, the principles don't change whether, whether you're in the gym. The principles don't change whether you're in PT. We need to maximize range of motion, pain-free range of motion. Once we have range of motion, we can load strength on top of that. Now, this this is not, these are not hard lines in the sand. You know, it's fluid because we may start isometric activities a little bit sooner. Um, isometrics, one, can help with muscle setting to get the muscle pumping. If there's fluid, it helps to pump it out. But also, it actually decreases pain. So isometrics are going to be very, very safe, especially the more irritable someone is. If someone is only having pain when they load the tissue an overhead press at 185 pounds, that's a lot of stress and a lot of force. There's a lot of things that we can do to, to help that shoulder get used to that stress and adapt it. 
It's like, so you're telling me that I can drop it down to 155, do more volume, and that's going to help me? Yeah, you're damn right. There's no reason why I should have to stop or even just changing hand positions, even just limiting my range of motion for the time being. Um, you know, focusing on, and, and the worst thing is, you know, and you've probably had this before. Listen, my, my shoulder hurts, so I'm going to take the entire night off. Now, because this is a podcast and we can be a little more real, how do you feel internally when someone says that to you? Not super happy. Um, and, and it's not it's not necessarily that I'm angry at that person. It just, it, it, we keep going back around to the representation of pain. pain. People think pain means I don't do anything, I stop. When realistically, you still get so much benefit from coming in. And even if, so whether it's, it's modifying, think about it this way. We've been talking about, right, how, um, you know, you can't offset eight hours worth of work with three minutes. Okay, fine. You know that you're planning on coming to the gym. You have it in your schedule. So if you can't press overhead with that arm, fine. Come in and do your mobility stuff. Do some rolling. Do some work with a lacrosse ball. Just do some pass. I mean, you know what I mean, passive. No movement is truly like in quotes passive. But like just some easy range of motion exercises. Or you put that mofo in a sling and you press with the other arm because... You know, there are more and more studies coming out now that, that has that limb crossover effect. You get, I can't remember what the number is, it's like 20 to 30% yeah. of the, the benefits. If, you're, if your right arm is all jacked up and you press overhead with the left hand, you're getting 25, 25 to 30% of the benefits to the right arm, even though it's only the left arm moving. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we should be able to modify most exercises and we should be able to help anyone with most conditions to still come in and work out. They're getting blood flow to the area, which has a healing effect. Um, and also there are other exercises they can do. You know, Just because something is listed up on the board doesn't mean they have to do it, or even some derivative of, of that exercise. If, if there's a pushing moment and we know that someone has pain with a pushing movement, give them a back exercise. You know, We know that's gonna be beneficial. You know, Most of the time I'll tell people just focus on your rehab exercises when and substitute those in. You know, I can't stress that enough. Listen, if you have a shoulder problem, the back exercises are very, very safe for you. Just substitute that in and you'll be fine. Plus, you're getting three or four times the volume now because now you're putting it in place of something else. And then as your shoulder pain starts to recover, then add in that pushing movement again, low volume, limit your range of motion if you need to, and then slowly add the stress on as needed. So I think sometimes people do that intuitively and then I think some people are just the no pain, no gain, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. We, we got to meet somewhere in the middle. You know, we, we can't be at, at either end of the spectrum, but we got to meet somewhere in the middle. And that's hopefully what we're getting across today. Yeah. So let's, uh, we, we've, we've talked a lot about a bunch of different things. Let's run real quick. Through, I mean, you know, not real quick. We're not going to like rush it. If we go over a little bit, then we go over a little bit. But um, through some like common shoulder, I don't even want to say necessarily injuries, some things that, you know, you've heard of frozen shoulder, impingement. We've already touched on rotator cuff stuff, so we won't really go necessarily back to that, even though those things are going to be involved. But so let's, let's go through, let's go to frozen shoulder. Sure. Because that's one that people hear a ton of and like even I don't fully completely understand all the mechanics of quote frozen shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. And before we even get into that, you know, whether it's a rotator cuff tear, the bicep or impingement syndrome, you know, a lot of these are just names. So they have common impairments and they're all basically the same, you know. So our goal to fix them all is all basically the same. You know, there's some nuances, you know, we want to make it individualized, but you know, it, it, it really doesn't change that much. You know, we give things fancy names to sound complicated and we think we're really smart because we do that. But all it tells us is the area that might be painful, but doesn't tell us what's causing it. Mm. Now, frozen shoulder is slightly different because it, it's called adhesive capsulitis. You know, that's the official terminology for it. And basically what it is, is, is the capsule, the synovium, 
um, the, the synovial plica around the shoulder literally starts to adhere to itself, you know, and that's, it's not a pleasant diagnosis. It's, it's if it's true frozen shoulder, it's one of the more um, difficult conditions to deal with. Now there's two types. There's primary frozen shoulder and secondary frozen shoulder. So primary occurs for no reason. You have risk factors that may, you know, put you at an increased risk of it. Secondary happens because of something else. You know, you fell, hurt your shoulder, and then you get secondary frozen shoulder after that. There are four stages depending on what resource that you look at. There's the pre-freezing stage, which could just be your, your I strained my rotator cuff. We probably heal from that and it doesn't progress to phase two. Great. But if it does, then there's a second stage called the freezing stage where you typically have increasing pain, decreasing range of motion, decreasing function. Very, very painful. Then we have the third stage, which is called the frozen stage. You know better, no worse. And then you have the thawing stage where you have increasing function, decreasing disability. Now, if you can catch someone early enough, you can progress them through the phases pretty quickly and people have a good outcome, but they still have to go through the phases. There's really not a large inflammatory mediator process going on. So especially as it becomes chronic in the beginning, quite possibly. So cortisone is not the, the, the key fix to it. What you need to do is maintain range of motion, maintain the strength that you have, and you actually want to try to push the range of motion the best that you can. Now I usually tell people our goal is to not create pain, but there are some some conditions that that we do, and frozen shoulders one of them. You know, do you want to create a 10 out of 10 pain? No, but if you're taking a, a shoulder and you're pushing it into its end range and it's just stopping, it's going to hurt. Now the nice part is it tends to be self-limiting. Each phase can last anywhere from three to nine months. So without treatment, frozen shoulder usually resolves itself in two to four years. Uh, that's a long friggin' time. So. Now, risk factors associated with that is if you injure yourself, you wanna make sure you keep your arm moving. If you do not move your arm above 90 degrees for a prolonged period of time, you are at an increased likelihood of developing frozen shoulder, especially if you're a female. So risk factors associated with it are being a female between the ages of 40 and 60, someone who has diabetes, someone who smokes, someone who has cardiovascular disease, and someone who has a pulmonary condition. So. If you have diabetes, you are also 40% more likely to develop it on the other side as well. So we just want to be mindful of that. So keeping range of motion in the shoulder is very, very important. I've seen people come in, I have shoulder pain, I've been diagnosed with frozen shoulder, but they can lift their arm up to 150 degrees. Horseshit. That is not frozen shoulder. They didn't, they didn't earn the right to have it called that. Someone probably just didn't go through the process. Usually frozen shoulder is diagnosed because everything else has been ruled out. There's really no test to tell you what's going on. Uh, the only thing they've ever found on x-ray that's consistent is that we have a ligament called the coracohumeral ligament and that's a little bit inflamed or thickened over time. That's the only thing that they found. So it's a process of elimination. But the second that you see someone with frozen shoulder, when you ask them to lift their arm, they typically shrug oh, yeah. all the way up and that's the only way they can lift their arm up. Yep. External rotation tends to be most limited, followed by abduction, follow, or uh, external abduction followed by internal. Um, flexion tends to come back first, and then the rotations, uh, it takes a while for them to come back. Practicing range of motion is key. Again, it, it's you have to stress the end range, like we talked earlier. So even if you can only lift your arm 90 degrees, you have to take it to 90 degrees, and you have to stress it. You don't want to overdo it. You know, we know what the recipe is, but we got to fine tune the ingredients once we get there. But it's, uh, it's, if you get true frozen shoulder, it's, I don't envy it. I, I, it's actually quicker to heal a rotator cuff tear than frozen shoulder. Yeah. But again, it's the impairments that are found with it. You, you lack range of motion, you lack strength, and then you have, you lose function. So even as someone starts to heal, we improve range of motion, we improve strength, we optimize function and we load it. You know, so that that's it's a very simple recipe. You know, it's just a matter of knowing what to look for. Frozen shoulder doesn't follow a typical tissue healing path that I've talked about before, but it's all based on response. If you're improving your range of motion with less and less pain, then you can start adding on 
strengthening, you know, which is which is super important. Now, what they have shown is that exercise outside of using the shoulder is still beneficial because you're getting more blood flow to the area. Whether it's a devascularization of the shoulder or whether it's a persistent pain syndrome, exercise is key. You know, so we still want to stay moving even with the presence of pain. We just don't want to cause too much. And that's the key for frozen shoulder. All right. So we uh, we talked about a lot, guys. If you have any other questions or want us to go over any other uh maladies any other shoulder type stuff please respond uh to the you know check the email in uh in the description for the episode um ross's information for his ask ross anything is in there it's a great place to ask those questions um there's so many different shoulder things uh you know in pain all that sort of stuff there there's you know we could talk about it for three hours so um ask those questions we'll get back to you our information's in there otherwise guys uh have yourself a fantastic Uh, rest of your week and we will see you next week. Take care everyone.